this is where the real counterinsurgency manifests, right? That it's both the targeted effort to obliterate the left, but it's also a generalized effort to obliterate the social context in which the left emerges. That it is the, the criminalization of sociality. It's trying to make relationships illegal. to the death panel patrons thank you so much for supporting the show we couldn't do any of this without you and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes pick up a copy of health communism and pre-order jules's new book a short history of trans misogyny at your local bookstore or request them at your local library and follow us at death panel underscore so today I am joined by good friend of the panel and returning guest, Dan Berger. Dan is a professor of comparative ethnic studies at the University of Washington at Bothell and author of Stayed on Freedom, The Long History of Black Power Through One Family's Journey. So I've asked Dan on today to talk about a piece that he wrote about how RICO charges, like the ones recently levied against Stop Cop City, have a long history of being used against left-wing movements and radicals. The piece is called RICO and Stop Cop City, The Long War Against the Left, and it was published in partnership by the Law and Political Economy blog and The Abusable Past, which is the digital companion to the Radical History Review. Dan, welcome back to the Death Panel. It's always so nice to have you on the show. Thanks so much. It's always great to be here. So we were talking about this a little bit before we started. <laughs> and Dan, I'm just so glad that you could join to talk about this piece you wrote, which will get us into some of the history of how the criminal legal system punishes left movements. And this is something for people who have read Health Communism you know, this is something Artie and I talk about in the chapters called Care and Cure around SPK. But, you know, this is part of a much longer sort of broader history of the criminalization of left organizing, of mutual aid, of protest movements, but of just simply, you know, groups of people sharing the same sort of leftist ideas at the same time. <laughs> And as you joked to me when I texted you about coming on, um, you replied with something like, I like that I'm Death Panel's repression correspondent. <laughs> <laughs> because really, you know, at the heart of what we're going to talk about today is, you know, repression and the ways that the state criminalizes the various ways that we show up for each other to save each other's lives, as Dean Spade would say, you know, knowing that it's on us to survive and that no one's coming to save us. Right. And so that's very much sort of what is at the center of what we're talking about today. Yep, absolutely. And I think it's so, in you know, it, it's easy to consign repression to a thing in the past or a thing in the history books or a thing that only happens to other people. Um, and that's a big part of how of how it works, right? That it, that it aims to terrify people. It aims to scare people away from showing up for each other and with each other. You know, I had the chance uh, right before that piece came out to speak with a journalist for The Guardian who was writing a story about the RICO charges and asked me if I thought this would have a chilling effect, if the RICO charges would have a chilling effect on the movement. And I said, it's certainly aimed to do that. 
But whether it will do that is up to all of us. And I think that's really important because the goals of the state are not ones that we have to adopt or accept. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think Rico is such a, a clear example where we can see that difference. Like just because they're trying to intimidate us and pacify us doesn't mean we have to accept that. In fact, right, it, it, it's such a tremendous opportunity to reject that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, one of the sort of counterfactuals that has stuck with me since Artie and I wrote those two chapters on SPK is what would have happened if the entire anti-psychiatry movement, all the sort of professionals and doctors and philosophers that they were corresponding with hadn't just all gotten chickened out and <laughs> disappeared when, when they were criminalized, right? I mean, you have the kind of contingent of the Italian psychiatrists who went to support SPK, but... You had uh, Deleuze and Guattari going with some of their students. You had, like, obviously folks locally. But what we sort of talk about is how oftentimes these sort of moments of, of criminalization, these accusations, whether it's of domestic terrorism, terrorism, um, conspiracy, money laundering, charity fraud, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. these kind of ideas of there being a kind of coordinated um, criminal conspiracy that the state has to deal with, centralized somehow within left organizing, and of course, like always with the intent to overthrow the state, right? Um, yep. And, you know, one of the things that's that's sort of happened over and over in history, which is why it's so important to look back and learn from these things, is that it does, as you're saying, Dan, have this sort of reputation for having an effective chilling effect, whether it's like breaking up solidarity between movements, like I brought up just now in the case of SPK, breaking up, you know, aligned movements, working on one project together in the case of Stop Cop City, or, you know, in the case of Stop Cop City, sort of making this broader um, multi-state uh, means of, of punishing people for engaging in left activity, right? So there's yep. a kind of there's a kind of pre-foreclosure that I want us to be able to avoid here, right? And I really hope that folks who are listening can just take a second and, you know, sit with the fact that like just because this results in breakdowns and that this is an effective um counterinsurgent tactic that's been used against the left over and over that doesn't mean that it has to fucking work this time which you know i think dan you put it absolutely perfectly this is not destiny that we're working with but we are working up against a pretty dangerous and totalizing legal tool exactly yeah and i you know rico is a relatively modern invention it began in 1970 and has been supercharged um, in the in the 80s and and i think you know in the last 10 years or so we're seeing it supercharged again um and you know i i think repression sometimes just scares people just the thought of it scares people but often it it scares people because it does have real consequences right people, there mm -hmm. are real stakes involved and that's why i think the framework or the, the principle of solidarity is so important, right? That yeah. like solidarity is about taking a risk for and with and alongside other people. Um, it's not, it's, it's precisely not when things are easy or convenient, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Um, Especially, and we, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, we see a lot of, we've seen a lot of discourse around this in the last couple of months in terms of the various strikes going on. Um, and, you know, people trying to, talk about is it okay like what if i what if i cross a picket line but <laughs> i smile like at you know at the workers or whatever <laughs> like people trying to come up with all these like 
ways to not be inconvenienced. It's like, no, like this, this is the basic mechanism of what solidarity means and what it looks like. And certainly when you have the full force of the state, which I think is, is how we should understand, you know, RICO charges, um, bearing down on you, right. That, that, mm-hmm. that's, that's a real thing. Right. So I think it's understandable for people to be afraid, but I think, you know, uh, there's this great quote from Audre Lorde that hopefully I'm not going to mess up, but it was something to the effect of, you know, when I when I dare to to use my voice and be powerful, it, it matters less and less whether I am afraid, right? Like that sense of like recognizing your fear is a good step to overcoming. And mm-hmm. I think so like absence of solidarity is when we give in to our fear, right? <laughs> and we give in to the sense of like, well, they're not doing it exactly how I want it to be done. So... I don't need to worry about it. Mm -hmm. But I think we see over and over and over again that these kinds of measures or laws that are designed with one purpose in mind always get applied more broadly, right? So, and and RICO is such a classic example of it. So, right, past 1970, for listeners who don't know, RICO is short for Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations. So this was a law that was originally designed to be used against the mafia and has been consistently used against everyone else, right? <laughs> which, which is not to say it hasn't also been used against the mob, it absolutely has. Um, but, you know, it, it's designed ostensibly for use against the mob doesn't mean that it stayed within the mob. Uh, or for use against mob. Instead, what it's meant is the government has tried to curate this this sort of roving mafia, right? <laughs> so that any um, sort of opposition to to the state or anything deemed to be, you know, sort of disruptive in some fashion can be seen as a quote unquote racketeering influenced and corrupt organization. And part of what's so devious about it and, and what's so corrupt in, in, in its usage is this way that, that it's all premised on an underlying conspiracy. Mm-hmm. So you were sort of referencing, you know, Dean's work to, to sort of understand this. I mean, the, the RICO, the case out of Georgia, people should read it if they have the stomach and patience for it. I mean, it's a 110-page long indictment and it is one of the wildest things that i have ever seen um Mm -hmm. for its explicit delineation of beliefs as part of or proof of an underlying conspiracy and you know the the beliefs are things like protection of the environment opposition to law enforcement um the the practices are things like sharing food with somebody, um, buying, you know, buying glue or buying supplies that could be used for making signs or for bailing people out of jail, um, up to and including things that that are criminal acts. I, you know, there's something in there about a Molotov cocktail or something about trespass. Right? So there are things that are against the law in the indictment, but it makes no distinction between things that are against the law and things that are not, and and things that are in fact ra- rather natural human expressions of community and conviviality, and so to see that all packaged and framed as proof of this criminal conspiracy is something that we should all be paying attention to. And just to sort of bring in some more context or background for folks who 
you know, especially we have a lot of listeners who are not in the United States who might not necessarily know what's going on in Georgia and, and the sort of cop city, um, stop cop city movement, because recently like RICO charges were in the news and Georgia, this specific sort of circumstance was in the news because Trump, you know, there was like an indictment that that sort of like, you know, liberals fawned over and, um, you know, it, it was sort of frustrating so many people at the time to sort of watch. And this is very recently. This is like earlier in August, right? Like, right, exactly. And for a week, you know, a, a lot of folks were posting like, OK, like, stop fucking clapping for this because this <laughs> shit could be used against leftists. And lo and behold, you know, the very same parts of the Georgia state, right, that that handed down that indictment came after the Stop Cop City movement. So on August 29th, a Georgia grand jury returned this like sweeping indictment. As Dan's saying, it's ridiculous. Like, well, I'll get into some of the details in a moment, but the fact of it being ridiculous and, and even if the charges were, you know, completely fabricated and had no bearing in reality, they still um, have an effect just in, in being filed, right? Like this the intended effect of even just filing these, whether this is successful as a legal effort or not, it's going to cost money. It's going to cost time. It's going to redirect, you know, what the movement has to work on. It's going to, you know, necessarily slow some of the work that, um, you know, in opposition to Cop City, because you've got work that has to be done to then support the 61 people who were listed in this indictment. And the charges against Stop Cop City, you know, they were only made public on the 5th of September. And as Dan was saying, these indictments, these RICO indictments um, are probably best known because of the kind of association in, in the collective imaginary that's like refracted through pop culture of like RICO takedowns of the mob, right? Like it's very Batman and Gotham, you know, <laughs> vibes. But there's actually a much quieter history, you know, behind that nostalgic, ridiculous mirage. There's this quiet history of what you call in your piece a long war against the left. And this is really just the latest attempt, as, as we've been saying, by the state to criminalize the folks involved in or who participated in any part of what has now become a years long protest movement against the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center, which is called Cop City by the movement that opposes it. So the organizers involved with Stop Cop City have for a long time, as we've been saying, warned that they were concerned that RICO indictments were coming. You know, previously, Georgia charged people involved with Stop Cop City as domestic terrorists for doing, as we've been saying, very, very regular things that we would describe as mutual aid. Um, the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, uh, members of the Atlanta Solidarity Fund were arrested and charged with charity fraud um, last May for running a bail fund. And, you know, for people who don't know what mutual aid is, I, I'll just throw in a, a definition from, again, friend of the show, Dean Spade, who has put it, uh, mutual aid describes the work that we do in social movements to directly support each other's survival needs based on a shared understanding that the crises we are facing are caused by the system that we're living under and are worsened by those systems. Mutual aid focuses on helping people get what they need right now as we work to get to the root causes of these problems. So this is sort of what, you know, what's going on here is you have a, a solidarity bail fund that is obviously involved in protecting uh, folks in this movement from having to sit in jail without bail for a long time, trying to buffer some of those uh, economic consequences that the criminal legal system like throws at people. Um, yep. And, and that, especially in, sorry to interrupt, no, but especially in, in Atlanta, given how 
deadly the Fulton County Jail is. I think folks should look this up to confirm, but I believe it's six people so far this year have died in the jail. At least 10. Six of those deaths were within the last two months. And so work of the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, like other bail funds, are vital, literally Mm life-saving organizations that are being castigated as criminal conspiracies. Right. So just like these these mere moments of showing up for each other, right? Like that is the that is where the charge of conspiracy is actually being levied. You know, that's what is being criminalized under these charges. So the other weird detail here is that also all of the RICO charges are dated uh, May 25th, 2020, which was the day that George Floyd was murdered by the Minneapolis police, which, Dan, as you write in your piece, that's nearly a year before the plans for Cop City, um, much less the movement to end it was even announced. Um, So, you know, it's. It's this kind of ridiculous construction of of a broad sort of left wing conspiracy to you know whatever. Yeah, <laughs> um, no, I think that that's absolutely right, and it's so so critical. I mean, that dating of the so called conspiracy to the day that that George Floyd was murdered is, to my mind, the most chilling thing about the indictment. There's there's a lot that's weird about it. There's a lot that would be funny if it weren't so serious about it. But uh, but but that that feature, that element of the indictment, is just a clear declaration of counterinsurgency, right? Yeah. And I think there, you know, often in conversations with people, maybe I even said this last time I was on the podcast, although I don't think so. But um, that um, you know it. But it seems to me like across the board, we had the, the largest protest movement in American history in the summer of 2020, mm-hmm. where a number of institutions and local, state, national governments were terrified. And since the fall of 2020, they've been trying to do everything. That's an amorphous they, right? There's a, it's a, a RICO-style conspiracy level of they mm-hmm. um, who, who's been trying to erase the memory of the rebellion and to try to ensure that something like that doesn't happen again, right? So the attacks on critical race theory, the, you know, sort of proto-genocidal attacks on trans people, like all of these things, I think we have to understand as part of that attempt to undo and undermine and preempt the uprising of 2020. And this is, in a lot of ways, the, the sharpest escalation of it. From at least in terms of state actors, that I think we've seen. And it doesn't come out of nowhere. The last decade of Black Lives Matter protests and indigenous sovereignty and water protector protests have seen different states try to pass, you know, law, not only try, in many cases successfully pass laws to say it's legal to run over a protester, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or or otherwise make it easier to harm, kill, arrest, detain. Uh, protesters, right? So, so I think we have to understand this larger, you know, context of the last ten years, the larger context of repression in the last ten years. Um, but this is a very clear escalation by the state of Georgia, as I think the entire, you know, the the, the two years of Stop Cop City has been, right? And the number of police and uh, agencies that have, have been involved, um, I think, it is is quite stark. Um, but, but there was something else I wanted to say related to this, right? <laughs> which I think um, you were touching on in terms of 
the the use of Rico and and the connection to Trump and the fact oh, yes, that it was yeah. you know, that it was the same grand jury. Um, so and and I think I'm a little I'm not as clear on this as I would like to be because it was the same grand jurors, but it was different district attorneys um, because it was the Fulton County, as my understanding, the Fulton County DA Fannie Willis who prosecuting Trump, but it's the state attorney general who is prosecuting Stop Cop City. And then, you know, they were doing it together on the domestic terrorism charge, but then the, the county level DA said the state is going farther than we feel comfortable. And so they backed out. So, you know, it's been, it's been clear for a while, right, that the state is really trying to throw the book at everyone involved. Yeah. Um, but what I wanted to say, sorry, I'm, I'm so meandering, but what, <laughs> what, I, what I wanted to say <laughs> is um, if you look at Trump and Associates, they were engaged very openly yeah. in a conspiracy yes. to, to engage in election fraud. Right? Like it, it's very clear, like, you know, folks who, who have heard me on the show or know my work otherwise, like, no, I'm not a fan of the legal system, but it seems very clear that there was a criminal conspiracy to overthrow the election that involved those people in Georgia. But if you look at the RICO indictment, it goes out of its way to personalize it to the specific individual's name. There is not the broad sweeping sense of indicting the whole right-wing movement, mm -hmm. the whole what, um, what, you know, what some folks in the so anti-fascists in the 90s talked about as the anti-democratic right, the small d democratic, right? This sort of authoritarian proto-fascist movement. There, there would be ample cause to do that, right? Mm -hmm. If you, like, you, you could, you know, if, if you were, if you were pursuing a RICO prosecution, you could say, here are these ideologies that constitute a criminal conspiracy that result in these criminal actions. How do we know that? Because that's what they do against the left, right? That, that that's what's happening in the stop, stop cop city movement. So that indictment is like ideologies, frameworks, anything people say, do, believe, tweet is proof of criminal conspiracy but when you have an actual criminal conspiracy it's it's much narrower it's it's much more um specific and targeted yeah i mean the kind of comparison of the two i think is really important because in some ways what it it reads like from a pr perspective is you know the kind of conservative movement uh conservative legal movement trying to you know, not just like necessarily equivocate right between um, like left wing organizing and the sort of Trump conspiracy right around the election and, and literally like coordinating, as you're saying, like that, that that indictment involves like emails like, will you please change the result of the state? Right. Right. Like, <laughs> right. Like like deliberate. Right. Like, can you please change what the votes say? And they're like, exactly. I can't. And they're like, but can you do it anyways? Versus <laughs> like, you know, the the indictment against Cop City, which is like this is an anarchist organization that's anti-authority and promotes exactly. collectivism and mutual aid, like right. and therefore is a conspiracy to overthrow the government. And in some ways, you could totally see sort of from like the the mind, the warped mind of a, a <laughs> southern legal conservative who's trying to game, you know, steering the Republican Party or, or, you know, the new fascist right out of the Donald Trump era, right? That you could take these RICO charges, you levy them at Trump, you personalize it, you separate him from the movement, 
you know, separate the conspiracy from the right. And then you levy similar charges and sort of equivocate with with the left. Right. And that, you know, plays into the framing that folks like David Leonhardt at The New York Times always get into, which is like that, you know, the all of politics is just a horseshoe. And in the middle, right. you've got <laughs> okay. the people, the third way people like me, you know, we go yeah. across the aisle, we handshake, we build good priv- prisons, and we give the contracts to the people we like, right? You know, like, That's right. that kind yeah. of vibe. And on either side, right, you have the bad uh, extreme wings. And, and that kind of view of like, um, Drawing that comparison is very much also sort of what's what's going on here. You know, yep. the point was to criminalize the movement to stop Cop City and to say that, you know, people organizing to stop the building of a, you know, militaristic training facility for police, not just police in Georgia, but police from all over, you know, are in theory going to come to this Um, facility. This is like absolutely also like tearing down a forest, right, to build it. And this is, you know, trading public land that's green space for like a cop training facility, right? Like this is all net negative. And to prevent that, to, to come together, to take care of each other and to demand that that not happen is a conspiracy, right? Because we're taking we're taking Cop City away from the people who want it, right? And that's exactly. that's part of what um, you know they're doing deliberately here is they're trying to um, also throw you know it's like throwing uh, what is it like the fucking wacky races shit you know they're they're like squirting <laughs> out like jacks onto the road to uh-huh. slow down the <laughs> opponents behind them like slippery oil like whatever right. uh, dukes of hazard right? yes yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right totally no and ran all the way i mean the I think the the reference the Dukes of Azard and the, those sort of cultural products are are quite fitting, right? Because so much of the playbook has been regurgitating a long history of a racist, repressive right. So throughout the Stop Cop City movement, there's been all of these recourses to the quote unquote outside agitators who are coming mm-hmm. um, and that people are not from the neighborhoods and not where, uh, where where the the facility is slated to be built. And, you know, I think again and again, the the movement, I'm, I'm not there. This is just what I am observing from outside. But again and again, the movement seems to show how strong a local base it has. The, you know, ref, signature referendum to put it on the ballot gathered something like 110,000 signatures, more than double what it was uh, required to have to get on the ballot and still the city is refusing to put it on, right? But that idea of um, of outside agitators uh, is the exact playbook that was used against the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And even before RICO was a thing in law, you know, in the, in the 50s, the state of Alabama banned the NAACP. So, you know, and, and we can go back even fur- further histories of Red Scare attacks on anarchists and communists, you know, always bound up with a, a nativist and racist politics. You know, this is, um, th- there's no new ideas on the right, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think there's, there are some new strategies, right? RICO is a newer strategy than, you know, the Palma raids, but, um, but I think it, it exists within the same ecosystem. And I think again that that's that's where you know we we get back to the function of solidarity and how how 
three-dimensional that is, right? I mean, I love, I'm so moved by that action of, I forget, five or seven people, but the day after the RICO indictments came down, there, you know, had a group of faith leaders who, you know, locked lock, lock themselves to the construction equipment in, in the forest where they're trying to build Cop City and, you know, issued a stop work order. Um, and to engage in that kind of civil disobedience in the immediate aftermath of RICO charges is exactly the kind of spirit that we need. And we just need to do it for the long haul, right? Because I think one of the things that has always bolstered state repression, particularly you know, in the last 50 years, the way that it's looked under mass incarceration is that the state has infinite, seemingly infinite time and money to dedicate to repression, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so, so locking people up for 40, 50 years, right? I mean, it has been a hallmark of mass incarceration. And, you know, we've seen some amazing victories of people coming out of prison after, you know, 35, 40, 50 years. And that kind of determination to stick by people, um, to free them over the long haul is so that that's the kind of energy that we need, right? Because the time frame that we're operating on, even though there's a lot of urgency, mm-hmm. is, is a long has to be a long term one, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because I think, right, the, these RICO charges are are not going to, even though they'll, I, I would hope and I would think that they are so cartoonish that they will be laughed out of court. Even if that were to happen, best case scenario that's not going to happen next month, right? That's not going to happen in six months, probably. And so it's about showing up for the movement and showing up for the people who are who are being targeted over that duration. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to, you know, we could talk about this for hours, but I do want to make sure that we actually turn to some of this history um, that you cover in your piece. You know, you, you talk of one of sort of a, a very poignant example of um, several instances that happened in the 1980s where you have the federal government, you know, sort of asserting that there's some sort of seditious conspiracy going on, you know, and using that specifically to target left wing organizing. I think a lot of times people tend to like memory hole the 80s and and mm-hmm. there's a kind of narrative of like okay so you have like the radical 50s 60s 70s you've got the rise of neoliberalism and everybody just fucking right. pussies <laughs> out and nothing <laughs> happens and then we're awoken again right by occupy wall street or something like, you know there's like a kind of revisionism that looks at the 1980s and says other than act up, nothing radical happened in the 1980s. Like, you know, and 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 um, I think what that ignores is that actually what we saw in the 1980s was an incredible expansion of the legal tools of repression, right? And the um, creative utilization of things like RICO charges to really kind of make the consequences for being a leftist that much higher than they had even been in the 70s, which we really think of as kind of like the, you know, height of like the government targeting left wing groups in the US. Yep. Well, I just want to say, you know, 10, 10 years ago, everything you that that narrative that you just said would have been true about the 70s, right? I think, <laughs> I think mm-hmm. it's relatively yeah. recently that people even allowed themselves to think, certainly historians, um, but, you know, journalists and, and many others who were not 
participants themselves allowed themselves to think about the 70s as a period of flourishing radicalism. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we've sort of kicked the can down the road. So now instead of 19, you know, 70 when everything just stopped now it's you know 75 79 80 right so <laughs> um but but it but it it fulfills the same kind of purpose that you're saying right and you know the piece i wrote looks particularly at um an organization a, a clandestine organization an underground organ revolutionary organization that ultimately came to be known as the united freedom front um, and really focuses on one of its members, a guy named Ray-Luc Levasseur. And, you know, their United Freedom Front was um, one of several cases from the mid-80s where prosecutors were using RICO to criminalize rest, whole movements, whole ideologies that were underlying movements. And part of why I, I focus in that piece on Ray and United Freedom Front and on also sometimes referred to as the Ohio Seven because there were seven kind of main defendants and most of them were arrested in Ohio, um, is that that was where I first learned about Rico. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when I was, you know, sort of young um, activist, I got a zine that was Ray's statement to the court because he represented himself and this was you know one, one of the zines or the kind of zine that the indictment in georgia is offering as evidence of a criminal conspiracy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the circulation of that kind of literature just to to make that point but um but you know i i got that zine from some like punk distributor of radical literature and um, and was just really blown away by it and by his history and um, and his clarity and commitment. And that is, folks can find it. Listeners who have internet access can can look for it under his name. And uh, I think it's published as until all all are free. I think maybe we'll um, try and put a link to it. Oh yeah, that'd be great. Um, but anyway, that you know, he talks about Rico and he, you know the charges against him, his sort of statement to the court. And you can just see on the page how insulted he is <laughs> at being called uh, a racketeer, right? At the implication that that anything he did uh, was done for for private gain, you know, both uh, you know as, as a communist, <laughs> but also uh, you know as as just a basics or first principles, right? I mean, this was, you know, a revolutionary organization dedicated to supporting the anti-apartheid movement and sort of exposing U.S. government and corporate support for the apartheid regime, for colonialism in Puerto Rico, and for support of right-wing par paramilitaries and death squads in Central America. And I didn't, I wasn't able to fit it in the piece, but the prosecutor who ultimately pursued this uh, RICO charge against Ray and his comrades was a guy named Robert Muller. And mm. there's <laughs> another um, famous RICO case from also from the mid 80s involving a group of Black revolutionaries that I mentioned just in passing in the piece. And it's kind of shocking that there's not more written about this case. Um, but they came to be called the New York Eight or the New York Eight Plus because it ended up being more than eight who were charged for reasons I'll say in a second. Um, uh, but these, this was a group of Black revolutionaries in New York City um, who, you know, again, were 
like the United Freedom Front, you know, they were charged with, you know, weapons and fake IDs and and some things that were, you know, precise uh, illegal activities, but they were charged under RICO as this, you know, criminal conspiracy based on a on a illegal ideology. And um, and the prosecutor of that case was uh, a young upstart by the name of Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> so right, so these are some people who go on to play very critical and and bad roles in the world <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> in the FBI uh, as mayor of New York, right? And and obviously um, Giuliani uh, with regard to the Trump administration. So um, you know, I mean that this is. This is not incidental, right? These are like yeah. career prosecutors who are sort of wa- riding this wave of repression into, you know, the, in, into sort of fame, fortune, and much greater uh, sort of power for the right. So, in the um, case of the Ohio Seven, you know, they suffered many, you know, trials in multiple locations. Um, you know, there were nine children between the seven people who were arrested, you know, three of them were couples who had, and each couple had three kids. Um, And the kids were all minors at the time that their parents were arrested. Some of them were held incommunicado. Police were trying, were interrogating, you know, eight-year-olds trying to get them to snitch against their parents with... Yeah, you write about like bribing them. Yeah. I mean, just very sick stuff. Um, And in fact, I remember writing with Ray when he was still in prison and asking him if his kids were activists. And at that time, anyway, he said that they were not, but they had a much clearer understanding of this government and what it was capable of than, than a lot of other people. And just can only imagine the kind of horrors of, of what they must've gone through in that time. Um, But this was, you know, a big show trial. I mean, the government had the, the, Seven, all, you know, most of them were convicted of other charges already. Mm-hmm. So by the time the government brought con- seditious conspiracy and RICO charges against them, you know, they 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 had their pound of flesh, um, and you know, this was really just trying to 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 indict this belief system mm-hmm. as as a crime, um, yeah. and you know, they they beat the seditious conspiracy charge and the jury deadlocked in favor of acquittal uh, on the RICO charge. Um, and so, you know, I think it was a, a big victory for uh, for them, you know, for, for the left in that way. But, you know, I, I didn't talk about this in the piece, but, you know, at the same time that the government is going against these underground revolutionaries on the left, United Freedom Front, the um, different Puerto Rican independence activists, you know, the New York Eight were all public activists. They were not underground, but Mm -hmm. they were being prosecuted for their connection, alleged connection to, um, you know, black radicals who were in prison and and who were underground or or, or who had been underground. Right. So this idea of trying to say like a black liberationist politics and anti-apartheid politics, uh, Puerto Rican independence politics, right, that, that these constitute uh, a criminal conspiracy, and and these constitute right a sort of outlawed ideology and an outlawed framework or an outlawed mode of thinking. At the same time, right, the eighties is this expansion of the white power movement and expansion mm-hmm. of anti-abortion uh, and homophobic violence that is also using some of the same tactics 
of bank robberies and bombings um, that you see in some of these underground groups, although without the effort that the left-wing groups had to, to not harm anybody. <laughs> um, so, you know, the so left-wing groups that were engaged in in bombings, you know, I mean, when you're when you're doing something like that, there's no guarantee that you won't hurt anybody, obviously, but they did everything to try and get everyone away from from buildings, right, before they attacked them. And on the government, on the on the right wing side, right, you you have uh, you know people trying to blow up gay bars that were abortion clinics, um, you know, murdering of abortion providers, um, you know, of Klansmen who uh, Don Black was a Klansman who tried to invade a sovereign nation in the Caribbean and just try to overthrow it by force, right? <laughs> so, um, and you and you know a lot of those guys are prosecuted, but by and large they do not receive the same level of vitriol and attention or, or the same severity of sentences as were meted out on the left. Mm-hmm. So in general, I mean, you know, we there's a, a finer comparative work to be done here, but in general, right, they, they had lighter charges and, and shorter sentences than what you saw on the left. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I really appreciate... Um you know, not to throw it back too far into what you were just walking through there, which, you know, Dan, that was like a, a beautiful sort of articulation of of um, just how that kind of chilling effect works, right? Because if if um, the, the moment where you said, you know, I, I asked, uh, are your kids activists, right? When you talked to Ray and yep. Ray was like, no, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, you know, I'm not I'm not surprised, frankly, because in in your piece, you link to a zine um, called Women of Ohio Seven. And mm-hmm. it's it, it you know, it has um, statements from the women who are involved in this and Ray's wife. Patricia talks about this sort of incident that we were talking about where, you know, their eldest daughter is basically sort of bribed with pizza yep. um, to snitch on her parents. And I just want to read this section because, like, if you had experienced this, like you would definitely understand the true sort of stakes of, of like leftism, right? In a way that, yep. that many people would sort of potentially prevent you from ever acting on your political beliefs. So um, Pat writes, on November 4th, 1984, me, Ray, and the girls were stopped not far from our home in Deerfield, Ohio. Many agents with machine guns arrested us. Our daughters were separated from us. And within one hour after our arrest, agents were interrogating our oldest daughter. They showed her wanted posters with her and her sister's pictures on them and other posters of people she loved. They told her she was lucky her family was alive, and if she wanted to make sure her cousins and auntie and uncle were not killed, she should tell them where they lived. They offered her $20 and a pizza. They scared an already traumatized little girl. Fortunately, our daughters were only in state custody for two days when my mother and brother came for them. You know, like, the the experience, right, of those kids, right? Like, this is a... this is. One of those things people sometimes joke about, like how people like, you know, Pete Buttigieg, who, you know, whatever, like his dad was like, you know, left wing academic. And so then you have the kind of neoliberal pro-military hell child that's sort of born of the leftist (laughs) household. But like if you if you think about sort of some of the experiences, especially of the kids in the case of the Ohio 7, right, like if you had gone through that as a child, like what Carmen's what eight years old I think right. when this is happening yeah. like you're, you're not gonna um get involved in leftist organizing lightly 
right? Like this right. is this is um, trauma the state created, and that has a tremendous chilling effect. You know, in terms of cutting off sort of generational uh, transfer of knowledge and ideas or collaboration too. Right. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, I think that's really how we ought to understand mass incarceration broadly, right? You have a very focused political attack on mostly Black, but sort of multiracial leftists, but as sort of represented in particular by sort of Black liberation movement, together with a more general assault on the communities that those movements grew out of. And so, you know, it was going after, you know, the sort of leaders and foot soldiers of those movements, but it's also going after the people who who would be recruited to them, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the people who, who were around them. Um, and so, I mean, I think this is where the the real counterinsurgency manifests, right? That it's both the targeted effort to obliterate the left, but it's also a generalized effort to obliterate the social context in which the left emerges. And, you know, not not just the left as some sort of precious ideology or something, right? Mm-hmm. But like the this struggle for a just world, right? I mean that that that's really what we're talking about, right? What what is the mechanisms, what are the movements, what are the communities out of which, you know, we we can create and live in a world where we all thrive mm-hmm. and I think this is at, at root what what we're talking about we're talking about the left I and mean, we we all have our theoretical niceties and, and right our like finer points but but at root right it is like what is what does the good world look like what does the good life in a good world look like um and and mass incarceration is an attempt to right silence people who raise that question right I mean this is I think in Ray's testimony to a statement to the court right where he says when he returned from the military from from vietnam he asked the most seditious question of all which is why right why why are things like this and 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 mm-hmm. how could they be better um and i i think that's exactly right you know that that is what what is at stake here and the fact that you know pat uh pat and carol and um barbara three of the women of, of the, the three women of the ohio seven where initially one of the criminal charges against them was harboring a fugitive, i.e. their respective husbands, mm. shows that, right? That it is the, the criminalization of sociality, right? It's, it's, it's trying to make relationships illegal, right? And, and, you know, prison exists to try to make those relationships impossible mm-hmm. or at least improbable, right? But the law is showing up to make them illegal. And I think that... I, just wanted to say on the New York 8 case that I mentioned earlier, you know, why some people called it the New York 8 plus is that the people at the heart of the case were married and the government wanted to get the spouses. I think I think it was all male defendants who were married to women. So I, I think it was the government was trying to get the wives to testify against their husbands, um, but you couldn't force a spouse to testify against them. So they created this complicated grand jury process where the wife of one defendant, they would call to testify against somebody else's husband and right, and sort of do that for all, all of them so that mm-hmm. they would all end up having to testify against one of their friend's husbands instead of their own husband. And instead, they all refused, right? And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and everyone who refused to cooperate with that grand jury, you know, spent time in prison as as a grand jury resistor, of which there is a very 
long and deep and proud history of grand jury resistance in this country where people have been made political prisoners as a result. Um, and so I, I think that effort to resist right the criminalization of sociality and the, to resist that criminalization of human relationships is is central to what we're talking about. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I really appreciate the sort of section towards the end of, of your piece where you talk about while he was incarcerated, Ray, um, you know, was was tracking and um, writing about the kind of expanding use of RICO. And you talk about a 1994 article that he wrote for Prison Legal News where he talked about um, RICO civil suits, right? Because part of what like the RICO legal framework is designed to do is to basically like make everyone in the organization's interests be zero sum against each other, right? Exactly. Um, the idea is to try and get people to turn on each other, to snitch, to go, you know, to to um, sort of agree to do whatever in order to get like a lesser sentence at the expense of their comrades, right? Like this is yep. explicitly sort of what this um, what this like mechanism is supposed to do and why the state uses it. But again, there's also a, a kind of other life of RICO, right? Which is where <laughs> some organizations, uh, I mean, and this is parallel to the kind of Trump RICO and the way a lot yep. of liberals have talked about it, which is like to use RICO, quote unquote, for good or for justice, quote unquote, right? That's right. Yeah. And I, I love, I mean, this is really what, you know, as soon as this RICO charges came down against that cop city, I thought about Ray and, and I went back to some of his writings and you know, I did a thread on Twitter about it, which ultimately became this article. Um, but really, when I found that Prison Legal News article, I was like, I just want everybody to read this. You know, <laughs> like uh, I'll say some other stuff so, you know, we can have a larger context. But I think that article is so sharp and so important uh, yeah. in the critique of, you know, this sort of liberal emphasis on a short term, what seems like a short term win. Mm -hmm. that misses any sense of sort of political power, right? right. <laughs> any no, sense absolutely. of like political arrangements. Well, I hope that, you know, as you and I were talking about uh, trying to book time for Yumi and Ray to talk together, hopefully maybe we'll get a chance to talk about this article with him in October. But I'd love if you yeah. would just sort of get into some of his critique here, because I think this is like super... This is this is like I can't I can't even think of like the appropriate thing to say. That's not an understatement. This is like a super yeah. <laughs> critical point, right? Like this yeah, is such exactly. an important aspect of what we're talking about. Yeah, that's right. Well, right. And th so this was the National Organization for Women attempt to use RICO civil suit in order to stop Operation Rescue, quote unquote, which was this right wing um, so anti-abortion effort of uh, of the 19 uh i forget when it started i think in the late 80s but definitely in the early 90s um and you know and and, and ray says you know uh, quoting but you can be sure the government didn't join now in its suit to conduct a broad certain destroy mission against the right wing they're mm -hmm. undoubtedly using this case as a wedding stone to hone the edge of their broad sword of rico mm -hmm. it took liberals and litigation to snatch a victory being won in the streets by pro-choice activists and turn it into a loser for the entire left and I think that's so, you know, it's so important and, and in effect, it is what happened, right? So, so now, one, its ability to use RICO in, in 1994, which was then 
weakened and basically overturned. Legal scholars could be more precise than me, but <laughs> my understanding is that it was basically overturned in 2006 by, you know, a larger and, and emboldened conservative judiciary. So, right, this, this short-term, uh, this attempt at a short-term victory by now didn't stand the test of time. Meanwhile, we have, you know, Fannie Willis in Atlanta saying, I love Rico. Rico's wonderful. And I, you know, bringing more Rico charges <laughs> in the last few years than anyone has ever brought. Um, uh, you know, with the power of Rico has, has only been strengthened, even though now's attempt to use it against the anti-abortion right clearly failed. Right? <laughs> you know, just from the vantage point of 2023, right, that this was, this was a massive failure. And I think what, what I appreciate so much about that article, and it's, and it's very short, and um, folks should definitely check it out. It's available on the PLN website. Um, but, you know, he's someone who, who, who knew the stakes of RICO. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, writing from within, you know, a sort of solitary confinement uh, prison cell, trying to sound the alarm that this is a massive failure. And in fact, uh, it was, right? We, we, we can see that plain as day from our vantage point, right? Of, you know, post Dobbs um, and, and facing down this, you know, 61 count, uh, 61 person RICO indictment in Atlanta. Well, the, the thing that's, you know, so great about this piece of race from 1994 is he, you know, it's, it's short and sweet as you're saying, and it, and it, it it uh it immediately sort of gets into um just the the small tweaks right where yeah. the rico had been expanded and the kinds of ways that you know these things are justified right like we'll just kind of make it so that you know let's just uh tweak rico here so we can get those mobsters right is always kind of like the way these things are talked about let's just like stretch the bounds here to do this but right what that also does in some capacity is expand and expand and expand rico until you need less and less proof or less and less context and more and more people can be sort of dragnetted in right and you know the the kind of mandate and and purpose of Rico is lost in the use over the years. Um, and oh, that's right. You know, not to bring up SPK again, but like <laughs> this is where my context is coming from, right? The yeah. the laws that are criminalizing SPK are actually laws that are passed and designed to um, denazify West Germany. They're yeah. laws to manage neo-Nazi organizers that started organizing again in response to student organizing in 1968. But who are those laws? You know, used against more than uh, neo-Nazis or any sort of uh, late retained Nazis that were all over West Germany as SPK is, you know, writing about. But no, yeah. it's used against students. It's used against people protesting. It's used against SPK. And some of the techniques for torture and for isolation that were pioneered in um, these German facilities where they were like, okay, you know, this is like more humane, right? Like this, this kind of idea of like, well, we'll... Um, will put someone in solitary confinement, like also has uh, origins in these laws, right? The the kind of um, way that these legal frameworks and the kind of pushing of the boundaries that happens 
is often framed as as necessary incursions on rights and civil liberties in order to achieve, you know, a really important nationalistic goal. And there's obvious parallels here to, you know, what people like Giuliani um, pushed after 9-11, the expansion of the surveillance state under the auspices of, you know, needing to combat terrorism. The there's a there's a whole sort of um you know, very rich history of, of it in so many ways. The the narrative, right, is that like there are bad actors out in society that right. we have to get, right? And yeah. but for those bad actors, society would be fair and good and equal and awesome and everybody would be fine. And if you sort of are producing a movement that might critique that, you know, then you're also a bad actor in the right. eyes of the people doing the design of, of, of these laws and pursuing these kinds of uh, legal arguments. That's exactly right. Yeah. No, and I think that that broader like comparative history is so critical, right? Because certainly these things are, are not happening in isolation. Um, I, I love that. I mean, there's so much about how denazification efforts became applied to, to the German mm-hmm. leftists. Um, I, I so appreciate this piece from Ray is, is, you know, bluntly called Rico expanded by Supreme Court and, you know, notes like this, that the Supreme Court was unanimous in this effort mm-hmm. and that, that the ruling was unanimous precisely because it, it allows for that sort of broad scale sort of sweeping criminalization that, that we're talking about. Um, the, the extra sort of cherry on top of this wretched Sunday is that that it that it that criminalization reduces the target to a racketeer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that um that that you know he points out that that to be a criminal enterprise doesn't require them to be to have an economic motive. Mm-hmm. So anytime money is changing hands for any reason, Rico between two or more people, you could have a have a criminal conspiracy, right? I mean, at root, that's that's really what what Rico is allowing, right? Or this expansion of Rico in the '90s. That, but but that's basically what we're seeing in this in this uh, stop cop city indictment, right? Well, I mean, as you said, like this indictment, the local prosecutors were like, no, thank you. This is even a little bit too much for us. Like we, you know, there's been some mention and discussion around like, you know, the judge's reaction who heard who heard the um, I think one person involved also recused themselves and, and stuff like that. It's it's a whole sort of other context here. But like it's um, yeah. this is even pushing the boundaries of Rico to a place that a lot of people very comfortable with Rico are uncomfortable doing it. It's sort of that ridiculous and that um, broad, because one of the things that that Ray talks about is sort of the really low bar for for what racketeering is. Right. Um, yep. Racketeering, he writes, uh Key elements of RICO are that individuals be engaged in, quote, a pattern of racketeering, right? And then he talks about how you only need two necessary connected acts to establish a pattern, right? Right, exactly. And that racketeering, you know, can be defined so broadly. You know, it's any act um, or threat that could be indictable under any law in the United States. Like one of the things that I appreciate is uh, often when Dean Spade talks about um, the criminalization of mutual aid, for example, he's ta- he talks about how oftentimes what is criminalized is the provision and meeting of needs, right? Where there is often a market alternative, right? Whether that's mm-hmm. medic services and healthcare, whether that's um, 
you know, providing food, providing shelter, providing monetary support. Part of what's going on when the state criminalizes mutual aid and pursues, you know, left organizing as um, seditious conspiracy is that it's also designating that, you know, these are not things that should be done for free. These are not things that you're entitled to just receive because you're a person and you're part of a community and you're here to help each other survive. These are commodities, right? And they have a time and a place and a person who's supposed to get paid in the end. And so it's this enforcement mechanism for all the various markets of extractive abandonment also that pop up, right? Like I could imagine if you opened a, um, you know, comrade peer oriented respite center, right? And um, you're just sort of running um, maybe a a peer led respite center out of your house, right? For folks in crisis, 24 hours a day, folks in your neighborhood can come in and just hang out, you know, in in a place in your house. Like that is is tremendous, um, you know, mental health service provision. But um, I could totally see that be criminalized as someone maybe operating a medical facility without a license out of their home. Right. And so you have these kinds of frameworks of like, oh, these are things to keep us safe. Right. Like whether that's like food safety guidelines used against people like doing food, not bombs work, you know, and this is the thing that Dean talks about all the time is that it's not just that like it's an act of criminalization. It's a reminder that certain activities um, must be economic and must be a part of the market as the state sort of dictates it. That's right. And, and to think otherwise or to believe otherwise is to be engaged in a criminal conspiracy. Right. Okay? And, and under RICO, a criminal conspiracy for for your own gain. Right? <laughs> yeah, the, it, it's so warped. It sort of fold, it folds the sort of status quo in, in on, on itself, right? That like everything should be about personal private gain. And if you resist that, you are doing it for your own personal private gain as a criminal conspiracy. Yeah. Well, and the the thing too is that ultimately, you know, whether, as we've been talking about, whether these charges come through, you know, Ray spent decades uh, in prison, his comrades, some of them died in prison. Um, That's right. But even if no one goes to prison and, and, and the charges are dropped, right, the economic consequences, the social consequences, um, the material consequences of the charges themselves have already happened, right? And that's that's kind of the impact that we're already seeing here is that in the RICO charges, 42 of the 61 people who were charged under this RICO indictment had previously been charged with domestic terrorism and already have had their lives completely upended. And one of the things that, yep. you know, pe- uh, prosecutors in Georgia were doing is, um, you know, specifically, for example, uh, targeting people with out-of-state driver's license and letting people with Georgia driver's license go. And you can uh-huh. do all sorts of things like, you know, creating the perception that, again, as you were saying, like the outside agitators are here, that this is some sort of coordinated conspiracy where people are coming across state lines deliberately to, you know, interfere in Georgia politics, whatever. But again, this layer is heavier economic consequences on those defendants, right, of those people that are being charged who are going to have to come back to Georgia and travel or be um, fined or held in contempt of court for failure to appear because they're out of state because they're further away. And the kind of, you know, way that this also produces an economic market in and of itself, right, where folks have further extraction levied upon them 
as yep. punishment for for merely being leftists here, um, right. regardless of whether they face official quote unquote punishment or not. Yeah, I think all of that is is so correct and so well said about the stakes. And I think it's also, I wouldn't be surprised if it was not a coincidence that the Trump RICO cases came first, um, mm, right? So that we could have this, I mean, I, you know, I don't, <laughs> everyone listening along, like get out your tinfoil hats, but I, you know. We're I, allowed a conspiracy <laughs> as a tree, just a little That's right, one, exactly. right? But it's just, regardless of whether this is like conscious or not, it, it, it's nonetheless true that like we have this major RICO case of like a very obvious criminal conspiracy that gets wall-to-wall coverage and, uh, and that I'm sure introduces what RICO charges are to a global audience a mere weeks before it's used much more expansively against stop cop city activists. Right. But I yeah. think as you were, as you've been saying throughout this, our conversation, like how many like liberals and centrists and, and, uh, you know, like non-Trump conservatives are like cheering the indictment of Trump and associates. Well, it's just so easy to be like, you know, not only the like horseshoe, both sides of them, but just, a validation and a re reinscription of the validity of Rico mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when it, it's, you know, just using Rico becomes self-justifying. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, like the fact that, that they're charged under this, you know, right in the shadow of a very obvious criminal conspiracy <laughs> on the right, um, you know, it's like serves to make it seem like these are, shared conspiracies right that, mm-hmm. that these are not not shared sorry equivalent conspiracies mm-hmm. um and you know there's a lot there's a lot of damage there as well right mm-hmm. um but i really yeah i mean I, you know i think groups like you know the Atlanta solidarity fund um, the various groups on the ground and fighting uh, to stop cop city you know this is a, a protracted struggle and all of those groups will need our support for the duration, but also all of these defendants, um, you know, the criminal legal system can be vicious, but, but it, part of its, and part of its viciousness is the speed at which it moves. Right. right? I mean, I really like when um, you had uh, just Phoenix on the show like a year ago, she talked about like the process is the punishment. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, and the censorship too. Yeah, exactly. Know. Yeah. Like this is going to be a long, drawn-out case. People have to travel to court, miss job, deal with childcare, elder care situations in order to do that. Like there, there is a you know they're extracting their pound of flesh all along, mm-hmm. right? Even if even if these charges, as I hope they will be, get thrown out. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I've actually been thinking so much about my conversation with Jess. I love that you just brought that up for for listeners who might be newer to the show or who don't remember this episode. It's from. Last year with Jessica Phoenix, Sylvia, um, it's about prisons and censorship, but about so much more. Um, she's awesome, fantastic comrade. Love Jess. Shout out to Jess. I'm sure you're listening. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Jess and I were talking about, you know, how prisons will censor books coming inside for you know, the purposes of basically saying that the content of this book challenge fundamentally challenges um, the validity and hegemony of of the institution of the prison, and therefore, 
you know, cannot exist inside this space. And like, yes, that's that's direct censorship. But she said, you know, the thing is, is like when books were censored coming to me, um, that's not just me getting a book. She would she said it's like it's that I as like a node of information and knowledge disseminating it to all the other people that are inside with me, yep. who I talk to, who I study with, who I struggle with, like it's not just cutting me off from that. It's censoring exactly. everyone, that entire node. It has a kind of catastrophic um, waterfall effect. And that's really, you know, what's going on here, right? Is we've seen yep. not only organizers targeted, but the bail fund, right? That would get the organizers out of the prison or sorry, that the, get the organizers out of the jail that is like notorious for being a hot, dangerous and a place where people, especially people of color, are want to die right like exactly. that that um you know has this tremendous history of um being a kind of notorious uh locus of of police violence right like the Fulton County Jail is in and of itself a kind of threat right that that yep. is has its own chilling effect right so then to 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 target you know the activists who have taken on this risk of criminalization knowingly some maybe unknowingly whatever but to take that on and then to take on the organizing that's meant to support that risk, right? That's meant to balance that risk because something like a bail fund, a solidarity fund, you know, that's not just necessarily there be to get folks out of jail on principle. It's also a way of balancing some of the risk that other movements um, and allied movements are taking, right? When in terms of dealing with the law. So one of the things that I think is is sort of going on here is that clearly. <laughs> Stop Cop City is making Georgia state officials fucking nervous. And yeah. <laughs> they um, not only got creative, but they went really far and they're going to get away with it. And as you're saying, though, this is not like some foregone conclusion that they are going to fuck up this movement, that they are going to actually succeed in their counterinsurgent aims of trying to slow down, divide, um, you know, as we're saying, sort of the point of these charges is to turn folks against each other to create zero-sum stakes within the group um, yep. where people's needs become directly in opposition, you know, where their survival is threatened, their material comfort is threatened, their freedom and their lives are threatened just by the context that this, this charge is putting them in, right? And so I, I would love for us to sort of turn back to this point that you raised right at the beginning, which is that there is a way through this that does not repeat the past, that does not repeat the way that this can be a sort of moment where a whole node is shut down, right? Where you have a kind of mm -hmm. catastrophic waterfall of censorship, of disconnection from movement work, of chilling, of sort of raising the stakes on leftist thought and existence. This is not, this is not fate or destiny that it's going to work out this way, despite the fact that that is how it has gone, which is why the state is picking this tool in particular to use against um, Cop City, because Cop City, Stop Cop City is scaring them. So they're trying to use tactics against Stop Cop City that have worked in the past. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think when we look at the legal assaults on the revolutionaries in the 1980s, like part of why so many on the left didn't support them is because they were, had been engaged in, you know, they were underground groups. They, you know, engaged in um, 
what, what they call the armed propaganda, like different forms of, you know, bombings or other kind of violence, though mostly not aimed at hurting people. Um, and so, I, you know, I think it was easy for people to like distance themselves from it and feel like they would also not be implicated in it or harmed for ignoring it. Um, and I think one of the ways through, you know, and, and I, I quote an interview with Ray at the end of the piece that we're talking about, where he talks about getting a letter from someone while he was in solitary confinement and that, uh, and that letter had a leaf in it, tricolored leaf that normally would be thrown away, but whoever was in the mailroom didn't notice it. And Ray had it for at least a couple of days until guards found it. Right. So just so we could understand solidarity on that microscopic scale, right. That sense of human connection that allowed Ray serving, you know, uh, a 45 year sentence to, to know that he was not alone, right. To mm -hmm. know that other people recognize him and his contributions and his sacrifices and his humanness. Right. Um, and that, 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 that together with his own kind of commitments and focus allowed him to survive. I actually think the Stop Cop City movement has already been such a profound and inspiring example of the kind of solidarity that we need because you have different organizations and different philosophies who have come together around a shared goal, which is stopping this police or urban military warfare academy from being built, who have used different approaches, right? who have different ideas. Right? Mm -hmm. who have different sort of theories of change and they're all moving in the same direction, right? They're, 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 doing, they're doing their version of it, right? Um, but there, there seems to be from the outside anyway, a profound solidarity to not throw someone under the bus because they have a different tactical approach or a different theory of change. And I think that's, that's really remarkable. And that's something that I think has been missing right in, in other moments when people either buy into the criminalization of people who seem too extreme or um or or ignore it mm -hmm. right <laughs> and who don't pay any mind to it i'm i'm reminded of two things that that, that i would say uh, or two things that i think are, are are beacons for me um although although i really think again the the, the movement itself in Atlanta has, has been such an exemplar already. Um, but one, one touchstone that I keep referring back to is this poem by Martina Spada called The Lover of a Subversive is also a subversive. And I don't have the poem memorized, but just the title alone, I think, gives us some sense, right? That like, we are, we are impacted, right? We are connected to each other, right? We, you know, what Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about as linked fates, right? So, that are, that's true, whether we recognize it or not. So it's so it, it's in all of our best interest to recognize it, right? <laughs> and the second uh, thing that I think is just such a great illustration of the kind of solidarity that we need in this moment is James Baldwin's letter to Angela Davis after she was arrested in 1970 that um, was published in the, in the New York Review of Books, but I have it in front of me. And, you know, at the time she was facing the death penalty and an international movement freed her not only from the death penalty but um, you know from from jail from prison altogether but at that moment when it seemed like her life was in the balance baldwin wrote this beautiful letter that everyone should read and he closed it by saying if we know then we must fight for your life as though it were our own which it is 
and render impassable with our bodies the corridor to the gas chamber. For if they take you in the morning, they will be coming for us that night. And I think that is the abiding lesson, right, of how we stand up and resist and survive state repression. That was beautifully put, Dan. Honestly, I mean, I feel like this is a perfect place to conclude us um, because obviously this is something we'll probably be talking about um, (laughs) over the coming years. But, um, you know, the, the kind of thing that we lament in our history of SPK and the thing about that story that Mm -hmm. makes me so sad, right. Is (laughs) the kind of counterfactual of like, what if people had showed up for them? Uh Where would we be now? You know, what, what would things have been like, you know, if, if this sort of chilling effect um, hadn't happened, if this, you know, wild and experimental project that, you know, some people thought was dangerous and some people thought was fucking beautiful. Like, what if that had been allowed to even, you know, exist in the iteration that it was supposed to exist for more than mere months, right? The right. the kind of ephemeral nature of leftist movements, I think, is often, you know, tied up into this idea of, like, naturalizing that ephemeral nature of left thought or left movements. and. Yeah. It ignores the material historical context of where that ephemeral drive comes from. And it it is from um, repression, from criminalization, from, you know, the ideology of removal, of censorship that the left is sort of constantly struggling against. Um, You know, and I think often the kind of idea of like, well, you know, the left's just like worried about internal debates and it's all internecine and they're so uh-huh. ineffective and everything's so short-lived and it's, you know, blah, 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 whatever. All those kind of critiques that in a framing, you know, really just kind of raise the raise the stakes, right? Because it's it's yeah. reproducing the idea that, you know, people on the left will never achieve their goals. They will never be satisfied. They cannot be satisfied by concession from the state, which is one of the only parts of this frame that is true often, <laughs> um, you know, and therefore are fucking crazy, right? The, the What we talk about in those two SPK chapters is not just how SPK was criminalized, but how within like the terrorism studies uh, discipline, uh-huh. all that knowledge production around criminalizing yep. SPK, and justifying the the persecution of this group for you know a decade plus as they uh, even after they served their time and were released um, you know as Huber is about to be released um, you know the doctor who's sort of one of the central organizers of SBK Wolfgang Huber. When he's about to be released, there are discussions about whether the entire law, criminal legal code of like West Germany should be changed so that he could be um, incarcerated longer. Right. Just for this one guy. Right. Just this one guy for for this band of, of, um, you know, organizers who has been decried as the quote unquote crazy brigade in the media. Like and they're willing to change. They're trying to change the entire legal code just to keep him in. And. You know, the the kind of ways that also this has 
resulted in the idea of the left as this kind of, um, you know, ephemeral, unstable, unsatisfied group of quote unquote crazy people who are never going to achieve their crazy dreams and their crazy desires and their crazy ideas about a world that can never exist, never fucking possibly exist. And I think a lot of times leftists internalize these ideas because they're everywhere, right? It's that social reproductive pressure that <laughs> is mimicked in the way that people are pressured out of masking during the ongoing COVID pandemic, despite you know knowing tons of people who are sick. Uh, we hear from people all the time that you know they're co- they'll be at work and they're the only masked person at work still and all their coworkers mm-hmm. are sitting around them complaining about how they're sick all the time <laughs> and you know the kind of cognitive dissonance and rage of, of being in that contradiction right of like you could just put the mask on and you wouldn't have to deal with this you know right but the exactly i think that what we sort of see is that that pressure to believe in the left as a futile exercise as a quote unquote crazy brigade as unsatisfiable i think this is part of the the sort of repression and um counterinsurgent approach to the left that you know the neoliberal state has taken um that has characterized the neoliberal approach to uh, leftist dissent, which is different from the approaches, you know, of past decades that have been romanticized in different ways. But it's so important to just sort of take a step back and look at these sort of dynamics and say, okay, it's not that RICO charges produce chilling effects because they're inherently effective, right? <laughs> it's that yep. they're being chosen because they've been effective in the past, right? And so we turn this into this kind of causal narrative of like, you know, um, RICO is the state's cure for left movements, right? right. Um, but we <laughs> right. can be unruly and <laughs> um, embrace being incurable here and and sort yes. of move forward um, learning from these sort of historical patterns, right? But not thinking about history as a wheel, <laughs> not thinking That's about right. history as always um, being a kind of fatalistic repetition. Yeah, no, I, I think all that is so, so well said. And and I think the examples from Germany, again, just remind us that, you know, there are particularities to the U.S. as like the world's leading jailer, but these are not purely domestic questions, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, these are not domestic, purely domestic questions of repression, and they're not purely domestic questions of the left and left-wing possibility and left-wing imagination. Um, and so I think, you know, really recognizing that, I mean, you know, like the, the United Freedom Front really felt very deeply the struggles of people in South Africa and Nicaragua and Puerto Rico, despite being people who were mostly from Maine and Boston, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like not who didn't have personal connections there, like really recognizing that we are all like in the same struggle, like internationally, we are sort of doing, you know, pursuit of, you know, of a better world <laughs> on, on the world side, not simply a better country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think all of that is very, very well said and very, very critical. Well, hell yeah. I think this is the perfect place to leave it. What do you think, Dan? Yeah, thanks so much. For always such a pleasure to think with you. Oh, likewise. And again, folks, if you want to read Dan's piece, it's called Rico and Stop Cop City, The Long War Against the Left. Um, you can check that out at the LPE blog or at Abusable Pass. We'll put 
both links in the episode description. I think this one will end up with a couple links from Dan here, but a lot of these zines that we were talking about, like the woman of Ohio seven, um, that is actually linked in, in Dan's piece. So if you want to dig into some of those zines, definitely go check that out. Um, they're fantastic. And I really appreciated, you know, you're always great with the citation materials, Dan. You're always like <laughs> pulling up like the greatest things like, oh, have you seen this? And I'm like, no, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, well, you know, what's the point of being a historian if you can't come with the receipts? Well, I absolutely. This is why we love it. <laughs> yeah. And again, um, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure as always. Yeah, likewise. Thanks. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism, and pre-order Jules's new book, A Short History of Trans Misogyny, at your local bookstore, or request them at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, Stay alive another week. <laughs>